The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the University of Notre Dame Initiative for Global Development, also known as NDIGD, an integral part of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. At NDIGD, partnership is more than just an aspiration or annual metric. It's part of our DNA. With over 270 organizational partners in over 45 countries, NDIGD is able to work in nearly any geography, as well as convene a unique set of both internal and external stakeholders to share publications, lessons learned, and research translating evidence to practice. Learn more about how you or your organization can partner with us at ndigd.nd.edu slash partnership. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today my guest is Ben Phillips, co-founder of the Fight Inequality Alliance, which is an international coalition uniting major NGOs, unions, and social movements to build collective power and press for action to tackle inequality. Ben's current research addresses building more equal societies and inclusive economies by building power from below and by building solidarity across organizations and borders. This spring, he's been at the University of Notre Dame as a Hewlett Fellow for Public Policy. In 2017, Ben served as a Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Resident Fellow, also working on inequality. He's also a member of the Civil Society Advisory Committee of the United Nations Development Program. Throughout his career, Ben has led programs and campaign teams for Oxfam, ActionAid, Save the Children, the Children's Society, the Global Call to Action Against Poverty, and the Global Campaign for Education. So Ben, delighted to have you with us today and really excited about this opportunity to kind of take a deep dive into the whole issue of inequality. It's a complex topic, not one that your average man on the street or woman on the street actually probably understands and all its complexity and with all of its implications. You're currently leading a global coalition called Fight Inequality which is obviously committed to tackling this issue head on. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about the impetus for creating a coalition and what the coalition might hope to accomplish. Sure. The impetus is that inequality has gotten out of control. I mean, if we just take this country, for example, there are three human beings, three men, have the same wealth as half of the country. Seven out of ten people live in countries where inequality has been getting worse over the past decades. So people are seeing the damage that inequality is doing, how it's ripping societies apart, and they know that that's not right, and they want to do something about it. Now, we've seen politicians and leaders acknowledge the problem. But what we haven't seen them do is act on it. And what we realized as members of this alliance was that we really need more pressure. And that pressure has to come from people standing up demanding action. So this is a complex topic. And if we're going to actually assume that perhaps one of the important steps forward in addressing it is going to be mobilizing people I think probably we've got to help them understand the problem a little bit more deeply. When you have an opportunity to speak to the general public or a, an audience that might be new to the topic, how do you try to explain to them why this is important and why you know we should be talking about it and why we, should we be organizing to address it? Well, people do feel a concern about inequality because at the root of most people's values is an idea that everyone's precious, that everyone is special. That's why we celebrate the birth of every child. That's why people value, for example, the idea that everyone's equal under the law. Now, no one expects there to be a situation, and there's never been a situation, there never will be a situation, where every single human being has exactly the same amount of wealth and power. Everyone knows that won't happen, hasn't happened. But people also feel that 
there have got to be limits. There have got to be constraints. So let me give you an example. If you ask people what should be the ratio between what the person on the factory floor makes and what the boss makes, a lot of people will say maybe it should be 5 to 1, maybe it should be 10 to 1, maybe it should be 20 to 1. In other words, people can tolerate the idea that the boss might be making 5, 10 or 20 times more than their workers. But currently, if you look at the biggest companies, it's about 300 to 1. And no one thinks that's right. When you do opinion surveys across countries, you get in roughly 60 to 70% level of people saying that the rich have too much influence. So there's a real public consensus that inequality has gone too far. It's not right morally. It's damaging for society. It's created a problem that now so much is dominated by the wealthy. So they have the wealth, but then they have the power. They have so much wealth, they're not just buying boats with it, but they're buying politicians with it. And people feel that this is wrong. They want to live in a society that works for everybody. And that's what this movement makes possible, is to reclaim that. And all of a sudden, where you know inequality sort of surged to the front page of our newspapers, where it's kind of interesting. We might have talked about poverty in the past, but inequality was sort of a word that actually wasn't even used, a term or a concept that wasn't used. Is this specific to one or two countries, or is this, is this actually a global phenomenon today? This is happening all over the world, and I think there's two reasons it's being talked about again. One is a sad one, which is that inequality has really gotten so bad that we are back to a kind of pre-Wall Street crash era. There's a lovely graph, well, lovely in how visible it is, horrible in what it shows, that has been called the Golden Gate Bridge graph. And what it shows is that inequality had kind of peaked before the Wall Street crash of 1929. And then after that, across the world, people took action, governments took action, because they realized how damaging and dangerous inequality was. And then it started to creep up again. And we're now back at those levels. So part of the reason why inequality is now being talked about is because it's reached this crazy, unhealthy place. But the other reason, which is more positive, is that people have forced it onto the agenda. You know, just a decade ago, or even less, if you talked about inequality, people said that you were an extremist, that you were radical, that you were dangerous, that you were trying to destroy enterprise. And now, you read IMF reports, International Monetary Fund reports, and they all talk about how dangerous inequality is. The world's leaders came together in 2015 to agree the new set of global goals that every country would act on, known as the Sustainable Development Goals. And there's a goal in there, goal number 10, in which they all pledge to reduce inequality. So every country in the world has a government that's pledged to reduce inequality. So one of the reasons it's back on the agenda is that things are so bad, but the other reason is that people have raised the alarm and the elites tried to push them back saying, don't talk about this. They insist on talking about it. They've made it a public issue of discussion. The next stage is to make it an issue for action. So some might say, well, this is an attack on wealth and we should really try to level out sort of the distribution of wealth across societies. And is it about wealth per se or is it about extreme wealth? And when we say extreme wealth, what does that look like? I mean, are there sort of embodiments of that? And you cited some statistic, you know, a statistic or two earlier. I wonder when you sort of think about what most illustrates what extreme wealth might mean, how would you convey that to the general public? It's about the society that we want to 
build together, how we want to live together. And the language is used that this is an attack on the rich. But if you listen to some very thoughtful billionaires, for example, people like George Soros, point out the dangers of this type of economy. People like Warren Buffett point out the dangers of this type of economy. Nick Hanauer, who is a great American entrepreneur, points out how you're at risk of getting to a stage where you don't have customers to buy your products. It's self-destructive to have this level of inequality. It leads to social division. It leads to violence. It leads to a whole load of challenges facing a society. It undermines democracy. The great Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said, you can either have a great inequality of wealth or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. So really it's about the kind of society. It's not about blaming anybody, but it's about saying, do we want to live in a place where the American dream, for example, is no longer possible? It's not happening because you can't have high social mobility when you have such a, a gap, where the economy is under constant stress and danger because there is a lack of purchasing power of those at the bottom and where democracy is at risk. People don't want to live in that society. It's not good for anybody. It's not healthy. And this is about a return to a society that works, that is safe, that is healthy, that is pleasant. In that society, it may be that, you know, as economists would say, you know, we need a certain amount of wealth to drive and sustain economic growth. But it would seem that what you're saying, and I think what others are beginning to say, is that there are consequences, maybe more severe consequences, for the extreme concentration of wealth. Jeff Bezos perhaps having $138 billion might be characterized as extreme. Does anyone need that much money? You might even say that, and I think you were implying this, that extreme wealth concentration might be bad for capitalism even, even if you are committed to a capitalist system. What is it that we have done or not done that's actually enable wealth to be so concentrated? What were we not paying attention to? Because we had here in the United States a society that was very, where wealth was relatively well distributed in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And somehow we end up, as you said, back in the 1920s again. And what was it that we were not doing or not paying attention to? And I think it's interesting that you mentioned America's own history, including that period, which really started in the 1930s, but went on to the 1970s, where governments, both Democrat and Republican, were committed to moderating inequality and making an economy work for all. It wasn't then seen as a partisan or ideological position to want to make the economy work for all. I think that what happened since then is that we were sold an idea that the more that you took regulation off, the more that you privatized, the more that you let corporations run riot, the less protections you gave to workers, you would generate great product, great wealth, and that wealth would trickle down. Now, that is demonstrably false. In fact, really since the 1970s, ordinary people in the US haven't seen an improvement in their real incomes, in what they really have. And yet productivity went up, the economy went up, but all of that was captured by a very small group at the top. Now, there have been policies connected with that. So, for example, people talk about marginal rates of taxation. That means the extra tax that you'll pay over, once you're getting over, a very high level. Now, that used to be very common and very normal across the world. It's much less so today. And that has enabled a concentration of wealth. There has also been a lack of look at monopolies and how monopolies have developed, especially in some of the new sectors like tech, for example, that it used to be an idea, very mainstream in capitalism, that 
monopolies were bad. But now if you look at, say, Amazon, Google, Facebook, that's exactly what they are. So part of it is a policy problem, but there's also a power problem. There has been a deliberate attack on, for example, trade unions. And what we know is that the weaker trade unions are in any country, the higher inequality will be. I mean, that's, for example, the International Monetary Fund's research has demonstrated that. It's an unusual organization to demonstrate the power of trade unions. But for all that people can complain about individual trade unions or wish that they worked better, when you don't have them or when they're weakened or when they're deliberately put under attack and under the back foot, you end up with a less equal society because the power to negotiate if you're an ordinary person can never be you by yourself. It has to be you and your brothers and sisters, which only happens through trade unions. So the attack on trade unions has advanced it. The way that politics is financed has advanced it so that big corporations will pay for policies that get them back huge amounts of money. They then have even more wealth. They can pay for even more of those policies. And when they get in trouble, they're the ones who get bailed out not ordinary folks. So there's a policy set of issues, but I think more importantly, there's a power set of issues. The last thing that's really important is there's also a story, a story that's been told, which is this story that we'll all be better off without common action, that we'll all be freer if we're alone. And what we've found out to our great cost is that that's not true. So now we need to rebuild another story, a story about how cooperation actually makes us freer. I want to pick up on that question, that last point about the story. I think it's a really interesting one. And maybe go back again to that earlier period coming out of the Great Depression in 1929 and then the response of governments you know, around the world to the crisis of that era. Here in the United States, it's interesting that we, you know, the only people that were taxed in that period were billionaires and millionaires of that era. There really was no federal income tax in the United States until into the 1950s when actually we had a working class, an emergent middle class that actually were taxable and the IRS was created in the 1950s, and we broadened the tax base as the income levels rose across the general population. And amusingly, the story that we hear today is that if you tax the wealth, the economic growth will collapse. And yet we had the most dramatic growth in the United States history was the golden years of economic growth were the 1950s, 60s, and 70s when we had unions and when we had high marginal tax rates and when the wealthy were paying somewhere between 75 and 90 percent tax rates. And somehow we that history has been erased as the new story has kind of emerged. And so I, I think you're notion about the story and what story we need to think about and believe in is is probably, I think, very salient. It's interesting, you know, your point about the IMF, you know, it's interesting, the most conservative institutions in the world, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Economic Fund, here in the United States, the National Intelligence Council of the U.S. government have all written reports in which they see inequality as a threat to, in the case of National Intelligence Council, national security, mm. to the globalization project, to economic growth. What does it tell us when these institutions are, are saying these kinds of things? What are they What are they worried about? What are they foreseeing? And how do they, what are the kind of the, the impacts that they foretell in their, in their reports? I think it tells us two things. One is that the costs of inequality are multiple. And sometimes when people say, what's wrong with inequality? You know, I want to say, well, how long do you have? Because 
you can look at it from an economic growth point of view that actually high economic inequality is bad for growth. You can look at it from a democracy point of view. You can look at it from a climate change point of view that high inequality gets in the way of tackling climate change. You can look at it from a safety and security point of view. You can plot on a graph how high is the inequality of a country with the proportion of people in that country who work in private security. The higher the inequality, more people work in private security. The higher the inequality, the higher the murder rate. The higher the inequality, the higher the domestic violence rate. There are so many negatives to inequality. That is why so many different institutions are concerned about it. But you also noted that some of those institutions that have now pointed out its problems are actually you know, not the kind of typical institutions you would expect to address this. They're not bleeding hearts. They are conservative by nature. They are very pro-capital. And what's interesting, I think what it tells us, is that inequality is now so obviously and so clearly a present danger. The facts are so clear that nobody who isn't trying so hard to blind themselves cannot see it. So even those institutions that wouldn't have wanted to see it, that if it was marginal, would have missed it, just can't ignore it. A philosopher once said, you know, you can have your ideas, but sometimes they hit the facts like your foot hits a stone. And inequality is that big, massive rock. And so people have been forced to confront it. Now, then the question then becomes, well, does that lead to change? Sadly, no, because the fact that we are right about this doesn't mean that we will get change on it, because politics is not decided by facts by what is right. Politics is decided by forces of power, by who influences. And there have been some great books, for example, Affluence and Influence, that plots how the wealthiest people have the greatest influence on decision making. And they're the ones who believe they have the greatest self-interest in keeping it this way. I would argue they don't, but I don't think they're ready yet to see that. And the second thing is that politics is governed by values and ideas and, and stories, as we talked about. And the stories at the moment still celebrate the individual Superman, still talk about the self-made man, for example, when we know that that's not really the story of wealth. Therefore, if we tackle those issues of power and we tackle those issues of story, we have a chance of winning. I was delighted when I saw all those big institutions come out and publish papers that say that we're right. Sadly, that isn't going to lead to change on its own. I think one of the things that sort of comes through strongly in your, those comments is the sort of multidimensionality of the inequality question. I think to some degree, when you first hear someone talk about it, your assumption might be that our solution is simply, you know, some sort of quick economic fix. You know, sort of there's one policy or there's one silver bullet that's going to kind of, you know, we need to tweak that one thing and then we'll kind of correct course. But there seems to be so many other elements that are kind of derivative of this. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how when you're, you know, thinking about your campaign, you kind of try to build those other dimensions into your narrative, into the story of your fight inequality work. Absolutely. It can be a challenge because sometimes people say, well, what's your one ask? You know, what's your elevator pitch? How do you do it? And the problem is, you know, as someone once said, the one thing is there's not one thing. That doesn't mean we should be hopeless or despairing or think it's so complex that we just need to drift away. People have tackled inequality. So as we talked about across the world from the 1930s or in some countries after the Second World War until about the 1970s, many, many countries did. Europe, America and parts of Africa and Asia as well. And in the 2000s, that first decade or decade and a half, across Latin America, we saw some really powerful progress in tackling inequality. So it can be done. That's a really, really important point to make. I think in terms of what do we then do about it, the fact that there isn't one policy that wins this shows why we need a long-term struggle. It's not one of those campaigns that has a 
use by date of one year or another year or simply says at this global international meeting can all you guys agree something it's not one of those it's much more a generational struggle more like the suffragette movement was or like the civil rights movement was or the fight against slavery was it's a generational struggle and so we need people to be in it for the long term so that's an important part of it the other important part is that the policies are varied and they are complex but they're not that difficult to understand or difficult to do so for example if you make taxation fairer which means focus more on income tax less on vat look at wealth taxes look at how you make tax progressive so that those at the top pay more if you invest in public services health and education publicly run and how you expand those if you redistribute wealth and land from those who've got real real strong concentrations to a much wider group if you raise wages so for example with minimum wages there's a wonderful campaign in the u.s called fight for 15 and all power to them if you strengthen trade unions if you pass laws that advance women's rights and the rights of minorities if you strengthen accountability and transparency around political funding these kind of policies and there are more but as i said they're not that complicated you could do them have tested them we do know what works if you do them you can reduce inequality some people say now we're living in the internet age or because of globalization nothing can be done that's just not true and it's exactly what people said at industrialization as well it wasn't true then and it's not true now so you can tackle inequality what's lacking is the balance of power is wrong that those of us who would want to do something aren't powerful enough and the reason that we aren't powerful enough is because we're not united enough so the key stage is that we all need to get together we all need to form groups and demand of those in power that they take action to reduce the scourge of inequality so imagining that there is a 20 year old recent college graduate a unemployed steel worker a retail worker from you know a major chain that's earning basically minimum wage and she's listening to this conversation on her way to work or home and is thinking this is such an immense problem where do i enter this fray and who do i associate with if i want to organize or is this something that exists as a problem so far beyond my reality that i you know i just can't engage where is this fight to be to be engaged? Can it be engaged at a local level? Can it be engaged at a state level? Can it be engaged nationally? And what does that mean for individuals and how they do organize to kind of confront this? And is it a global issue? I mean, are there aspects of this that require global solutions? It's all of those. It absolutely starts at the grassroots. And there is something that everybody can do. I mean, one of the obvious things to do is to unionize at work. That's a very helpful way to tackle inequality. People can also look at inequalities in their community. For example, how are the schools? Is there a good park for the kids? How are the relations between different members of the community? Are there people who are left behind? So at the most local level, whether in people's own workplace or in people's local community, there is something they can do. There's a really important role for faith communities because as we said, this is a question of story. So what's the narrative? They're talking about the good society, about social sin in other words how do you form a society in which people are allowed to flourish rather than immiserated and left without dignity so there's a very important role that everyone can play at the most local level when you were talking about those examples of those people one of the things that struck me was how much all of those different people have in common and how we're taught that we don't have very much in common 
that sometimes people will feel, for example, what does the college graduate have in common with the factory worker? What does the person from a rural area have in common with someone from an inner city? What does somebody on a minimum wage have in common with somebody in the middle class? And the answer is a huge amount. And there's a huge common project for a fairer and more just society that challenges the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of the 1% and starts to redistribute that, starts to build a fairer society, one with greater opportunity and more decency, and everyone will benefit from that. That also highlights what a political opportunity it is. How often do you find an issue in which 99% of people have a common interest in taking action on it? They're extremely rare, and this is one of them. And so if people can find ways to take action locally, but also find ways to unite with each other, it is possible to fix this. The problem is not technical, the problem is political. And when I say political, I don't mean that one party or another party can fix it. The answer is in us. So we're heading into a political season now where I think we have 25 candidates on the Democratic side and we're having a very animated conversation about increasing tax rates, particularly on the wealthy, which is gaining appeal, it would seem, at least it's gaining, gaining significant media attention. But often, historically, it's proven to be more difficult to actually do than it is to actually talk about. And people who write about inequality oftentimes use this term political capture, that in some sense, one of the effects of extreme wealth is, in fact, people can buy aspects of the system or legislation or influence, and perhaps even buy large chunks of the entire political system. And this issue of political capture is, is in some sense, a slightly different project than the economic one. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what we've learned about political capture and, and how it becomes institutionalized and in some ways makes the, the larger project more challenging. It's extremely dangerous because it creates a vicious cycle that the more wealth you have, the more influence you're able to gather and use that influence to then get even more wealth and even more influence. So that is the danger. Where I see opportunity or where I see hope is this. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the debate on, on one side of the aisle. But if you ask the public across countries, overwhelmingly, people feel that those at the very top are being unfairly and excessively rewarded, and the rest of us are being unfairly left behind. And so, for example, in the US, both your typical Republican voter and your typical Democrat voter both say that tax cuts for the super rich are a bad idea. And it's interesting that, you know, this Republican, current Republican president ran on the idea that he was the candidate against Goldman Sachs. I think he then afterwards appointed a lot of people from Goldman Sachs to his cabinet. But to win, he couldn't say, what I want to do is make the rich richer. So there really isn't a constituency of any significance for further concentrating wealth in the hands of the rich. That creates an opportunity across parties to start to shift first the narrative, but then to start to shift the policies and then to start to shift the behavior. Another point of political capture, which is both a problem, but here again, just to flag another opportunity, is that as wealth gets concentrated, we've also seen media ownership get concentrated. And so those who own the TV channels and the newspapers are those who would have to pay more more tax or have their monopolies challenged or have to pay their workers higher wages for a more equal society. So they have an incentive not to do it. But we have seen an opening up of communications because of social media. We have seen that TV stations and newspapers can be challenged. And we've seen a number of people find ways to engage with people directly through social media, build their own platforms. So I think we're starting to see 
are speaking of truth to power. We're starting to see people able to expose. Hang on, new politicians promised us this, but this is what you're doing. And these echoes to start to happen. That's where I see hope and potential that most people think, the vast majority think, inequality is out of control, needs to be tackled, super rich need to pay their fair share. The super rich are still managing to dictate policy because they're doing it in the shadows. But this breakdown in the monopoly of traditional media that now there are instead communities that can raise things on social media creates the potential for embarrassing politicians when they act in this way and for starting to hold them to account about what is it that you're going to do? Why is it that you aren't on our side? I think that the progress we're seeing state by state on, for example, the minimum wage campaigns shows that winning is possible, even in these conditions. And it is absolutely possible to win the policy argument for making tax fairer so that those with way too much start to give a bit more. One of the things, just conceptually, I wonder if you could help us just for the purposes of our listeners, make this distinction or help us see the links between inequality and poverty. Some people might assume they're sort of related. Other people might assume they're separate domains. But what is the sort of the, how should we sort of think about these two concepts side by side and how they interrelate with each other? Yeah. So some people have tried to argue, I mean, the very wealthy and and those funded by them have tried to argue that you don't need to do anything about wealth in order to do anything about poverty. In fact, they'll even argue that doing something about wealth kind of distracts you from doing something about poverty. But we know that that's not the case. If, for example, you look at the wealth that a company generates, now that can either go to those who own the stock entirely, or some of it can go to the workers, those who produce the wealth. And up until the 1970s, the workers got some of it. And since then, they've been getting less and less. So any process which will increase the share that they get, that the workers get, does mean that those at the very top will have a bit less. They'll still have ridiculous amounts of money. They'll still be able, you know, as the joke says, to park their boat in their boat. So they're not going to suffer, but ordinary people will get a fair shake. But it is the case that sometimes there is a zero-sum choice to be made about where does the share of profits go in developing countries where land, for example, is a very important part of wealth and where you have some huge landowners, for example, across Latin America, you sometimes have huge landowners, sometimes descended from the same Spanish or Portuguese families who arrived with colonialism, still own vast tracts of the country, leaving others landless. Now, the only way to give people land is to remove it from those who have way too much. There isn't extra land that can be built into the sea. So sometimes it is a zero-sum game. But also this point about political influence is really important, that we've reached a dangerous level of concentration of wealth that means that some people can literally get away with murder. They have impunity because of the levels of their wealth. And if we are to have a democratic society, which will then in turn create policies which benefit everybody, we have to tackle the concentration of wealth that it's so dangerous in and of itself. And that's why if you want to tackle poverty, you do have to also tackle wealth. It's in the Beatitudes, it talks not only about exalting the humble, but also about humbling the exalted. And that is part of what 
has to happen. Now, that's become a difficult thing to talk about because people say, you know, why are you picking on these bazillionaires? But we're not picking on them. What we're saying is you are special, you're precious, you're amazing, and so is everybody else. And if kids getting good preschool education means you're going to have one less swimming pool, suck it up because that's what a decent society looks like. And in fact, we would say to those at the very top, be proud of that. If your first achievement has been to amass a huge amount of wealth and be able to throw lavish parties, you know, good luck to you and, and well done. Let's make your second achievement creating a society in which everyone goes to school. No mother has to suffer the indignity of a dangerous childbirth. No one has to die because they can't afford the medicines to make it. People live in cities that are safe. Let's make that your second achievement. But in order to do that, you have to share a little. And you can't just share a little as a philanthropist. We know historically the only way this works is when countries act on this. That means government, that means taxes, that means public services. It's not communism, it's decency. So here in the United States, we're in living this paradoxical moment where we have a president on the one hand who is in some sense pulling the United States back from the rest of the world at a time when we live in the most interdependent kind of global economy and we could ever imagine. What does this say about sort of the globalization project? You know, what's the future of globalization? Is this, is this sort of part of what's created this problem? And do we have kind of a, an emergent global elite that in some sense a kind of almost a governing body unto itself in terms of creating rules that now, you know, unite the interests of capital around the world in such a way that this fight is really a fight that cannot only be fought locally, but has to be fought in terms of thinking, rethinking the globalization project? That's a great point. The way in which globalization has been done has generated great harm, but the answer to that can't be a retreat. And one of the reasons it can't be a retreat is that, you know, the forces of global capital are now globalized. So they will play the game, for example, of saying, if you in your country want to have decent wages and decent health and safety conditions and take out the lead from paint and make mining corporations pay their fair share of tax, we'll go next door. And they try and make countries compete with each other. We saw that on the Amazon HQ thing where they were even trying to make states compete with each other as to who could pay Amazon more money from state coffers for the privilege of having their headquarters. So they play divide and rule. And the only way to counter that is to be united. Now, some people can feel, and I know that some people feel this in the States, that, you know, globalization saw decent jobs leave, good jobs in, in you know, good unionized, decently paying jobs in manufacturing and they saw them go away and they think maybe the problem is Mexicans or maybe the problem is Asians. Now, the symptoms are real, but the diagnosis is not the right one. What needs to happen is an investment in building back jobs. And people have talked about a Green New Deal, for example, by helping unions to flourish, by helping education to be broadened and to take away the extreme costs of education through a combination of investment in jobs, strengthening unions and wages, and strengthening public education, you can bring back decent jobs. Now, they won't be jobs in car plants or in coal mines, but they will be decent jobs. And it doesn't have to be a case of saying, well, we'll roll up the drawbridge. The answer is to keep out the rest of the world, partly because you can't keep out the rest of the world, but also because it isn't the rest of the world that caused the problems. The reasons why American workers since the 70s haven't seen a real increase in their standard of living is not because of folks in Mexico. It's because of folks on Wall Street. 
So, Ben, you'll be heading back to Africa soon, taking on again your role as the head of the Fight Inequality Campaign globally. What's next for the campaign? What's the sort of the forward vision for where we go from here in terms of that work? How is the coalition seeing its role going forward? So the key part of the coalition's work now is on local organizing, organizing from the ground up. We're really delighted. You know, when we first started working on this issue, it was controversial to talk about inequality. Now it's not. No governments had made promises on it. Now they have. And the kind of public awareness wasn't so high. Now it is. So on all of those, we're doing really well. What we've seen is that the challenge is really a challenge of building up local organizing. So that's what we're focused on all around the world is how to strengthen that coming together. People need to join groups that could be a union, a women's group, a church group, a community organization. And then those groups have to work together really closely with each other. That's how you build the power. Then our positive cycle goes like this. You organize and you organize around a particular issue. That issue could be wages or it could be public services or it could be rights for women or it could be the environment or democracy. You mobilize on the issue and you win. But through that mobilization and through that victory, you've also strengthened your power. You then move on to the next subject and the next subject. So you see a series of organize, win, organize and win. And throughout that, you're building your confidence and your competence to make a difference. That we've seen in the past and we're seeing it now is how you beat inequality. So, Ben, this has been a really, really rich conversation about a very complex topic. And I think you've done a marvelous job in, I think, in making an accessible conversation for all of us to appreciate. And I think we have, I think, a call to action to organize, not only at the national level, but I think even within our communities to be taking serious action to address this particular issue. been great having you with us. Wish you all the best as you head back to Africa. And we look forward to hearing more about the movement and the work of the coalition as you move forward. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be with you. Again, my guest today on the Global Pathways podcast was Ben Phillips, co-founder of the Fight Inequality Alliance. You can learn more about the Alliance's work at fightinequality.org. You can also follow Ben and his work on Twitter, where his handle is BenPhillips76. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to NDIGD and other global institutes, centers, and programs. At Notre Dame, the Keough School is advancing a new vision for development that incorporates governance, peace building, human rights advocacy, cultural, and religious competency. Learn more at nd.edu slash globalaffairs. affairs.